And I know that each church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's, um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Anybody here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> Some of you are trying. You're like, I can't. I want to, to, I need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. We've got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking, start slow, hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. We got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three. I appreciate that most of you are laughing about that. That's what you get for hiring a youth pastor as your senior pastor. Um, a little bit of sacrilegious. I guess everything I do is sacrilegious. Uh, oh, that's a bad joke. Sorry, sorry about that. Last week we talked about the biblical responses uh, in worship. Like, what are the right things? We talked a little bit about hand raising. That's why I thought that was a nice, like, get us back into this series. This is our second week in our series, A Sacrifice of Praise. And last, last week I said, we're going to talk about like the mechanics, the why do we do what we do, the raising of the hands, the singing out loud, the singing joyfully, um, those type of things. We talked about that last week. Um, and I said, the, the remainder of the series, we're going to get a little more like theology of worship because while we've set aside, here's responses that we see biblically who are we as the people who are actually engaging in those responses? Because it matters. You may recall last week I said it really begins with the heart. So we're going to talk a little bit about heart for the next few weeks before we ever think about responses again. We want to make sure our heart's in the right spot as we approach uh, the Lord and as we live uh, a life that worships him. I love this video because it kind of illustrates maybe my own journey as a teenager when I was uh, really getting serious about my walk of faith. And many of you probably can identify with like starting here and I'm worshiping here and I'm worshiping here. I was a left-handed pitcher. Uh, was. I'm still left-handed. I was no longer a pitcher because uh, old man pitching is really dangerous. Uh, so I, I, I'm further away from the batter. But 
I used to raise my left hand because I thought, you know, if I raise my, my left hand in worship, then God will bless this arm. And I could pitch more innings. I mean, like, crazy things that teenagers think. I used to give blood with this arm, too, thinking that was going to help me pitch. So, like, these funny, weird things that you think about when you're a teenager or when you're kind of new to faith. One of the things during this time of my life when I really got serious with my faith is um, being real passionate about, like, those times of worship. And I really wanted to, I really wanted to engage, engage in worship. And, and youth ministry is kind of set up to go to, like, these events, like a winter jam or a youth convention or a youth camp. And I love those events, all these teenagers worshiping. You're like, we're not alone. And, and it was just a great high. And then the, it was over, and then it kind of, like, faded. And then it was another high, and it faded. And what I found is I started to live for these worship experiences, these worship events and these moments. And my relationship with God became really tied to a worship experience. And I couldn't wait for the next one. I was living for the next one. What I found out, though, is as I, as I continued in those early days as a Christian, living for the next worship experience so I could be close to God and be like, man, things aren't, I don't feel so close to God. I can't wait for the next whatever it is, fill in the blank, camp, convention, uh, concert. I found myself walking into those, that, those next events, but still walking out kind of disappointed, saying, well, wait a minute, I don't, I'm kind of disappointed that I don't feel as touched as I did the last time. And then you start to feel guilty, like, what's, what's wrong with me? Like, maybe God isn't pleased with me. And then you start to shift blame. Well, you know what, honestly, it's, it's not my fault. It's, if, if, if only this was different, then I would be able to worship better. Some of you know maybe what you can identify with that journey a little bit, those moments where you, you're eager to go to worship, but then you walk away kind of disappointed. Things kind of just laid flat, and you're like, I don't know. And You see, there's unintended consequences sometimes for what we do, and I, I think of like the, when it comes to worship and the church today, we have incredible worship teams that bless us with the music uh, that they put out on Spotify. It used to be CDs. But, but there's also a pressure of churches to sound like the CD because people walk into church and say, well, this is that song, but it doesn't sound like the CD or cassette tape, whatever you listen to. There's unintended consequences, really, that, that affect us as a church and us individually, whether or not it would be, you know, setting a standard for like a special service or a concert or, or the CD, we become, if we're not careful, consumers of worship. We want to chase after that next worship event, that next worship experience. And here's the thing with consumers. Just look at Amazon. Consumers are looking to be satisfied. Look at the reviews. I am satisfied with this event or this product, and I am not satisfied with this product. That's a problem for the church. And that's a problem for you in your own faith, in your own walk with God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be here for a little bit. Uh, it's a power-packed couple sentences that, that transitions, uh, that we see a, a, a giant transition in the book of Romans. Let me set this up as you, as you turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans was written by a guy named Paul. He wrote to the church in, guess what, Rome. Uh, this is considered, of all the letters he writes, this is considered to be like his masterpiece, his uh, magnum opus, if you will. Now, the first half of chapter, the first half of Romans, chapters one through eleven, Paul lays out like the most, some of the most important passages of the theology of like um, salvation. He lays out some incredible depth. I mean, 
I think it's Martin Luther who says, man, if we lost all the Bible but Romans and John, we would be good. We'd still be Christians. We'd still be growing in our faith. Romans chapter 12, though, is, is kind of a shifting point in the book. And, and we're going to read it in a second, and I'll address it after we read it. But uh, some of your translations, more formal dynamic equivalent type things say, therefore, let us, or, uh, you know, because of this, because of all that's come in 1 through 11, therefore, let's get practical. It's very theologically heavy, very doctrinal heavy, and then the implications of how we live our life and what we should do and who we should be. Just building up to Romans, because I think this is important because we're not like preaching through Romans. Maybe one day we should do that. Um, Paul talks off, talks, begins, and I, I, this is important because I want you to go to the text with this background as if we had read through the first 11 chapters. Paul begins to talk about how we are all deserving of being condemned because of sin, um, how God was good and gracious, and he made a way for us in chapter 5. Uh, justification as a result of the cross. Chapter 6 and 7, the transformation that takes place in our life. Chapter 8, glorification that we look forward to. He's laying all these truths of salvation out, and then he gets practical, building off of this foundation of this theology of our salvation. You see, chapters 1 and 11 aren't just meant for Bible study and Sunday school conversations or small group or life group as we call them here. It's not just made for discussion it's made to change the way we live, who we are, and how we live. So let's read it, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And we're only going to read two verses, but they're really long verses. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new per person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So there's that therefore. In, in, my, trans in my translation, the New Living Translation, it says, and so, and so, let's do this. But uh, anytime you see the word therefore or and so, you have to ask, what's that therefore there for? And that really does point to you can't just pick up in 12 and start reading without thinking about what happened in the first part of this thing. And I think sometimes we do that as Christians. We want to get to the, here's how you should act, here's how you should behave. And we try to help new Christians, young Christians, to act right, to change their behavior without necessarily allowing them to first grasp all that Christ has accomplished on the cross for us and who we are as a result we jump the gun and want people to, to act a certain way. So what happens is when we emphasize on the therefore without the, the background of the, the theological implications of what Christ has done, it, it, it kind of becomes a burden. This is what Christians are expected to do and to act, but do it without necessarily understanding who you are and what Christ has done for you on your behalf, like the, the armor of God that we looked at in the last series. It's important that we, we, we set a foundation of what Christ has done for us. If you are a Christian, hear me, church, you're no longer a slave to sin. Therefore, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside you and helps you to live out this Christian life. Therefore, live out this Christian life. If you are a Christian, you're simply called to abide in Christ because apart from him, you can do nothing 
See, I think sometimes we need a little less be like Jesus. We should, we should talk about being like Jesus, but it has to come after be with Jesus. Abide in him. Be with Jesus. Because if you're with Jesus, you're going to be like Jesus. But if we start with be like, then it's all on you to be like him. And, and quite honestly, Jesus as, as a model for our behavior is crushing to us because we'll never live up to it. He didn't come as a model as, more, as much as he came as a, a substitute. He came to take our place. Then you read in chapter 3, and he goes on, here are the things, not chapter 3, chapter 12, verse 3, here are the things that we should do. Now, if you continue to read in this chapter, but ignore verses 1 through 2, which we're focusing on, what you have is, is kind of a checklist for legalism. If there's no therefore 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, you have a list of behavior modification you have a list of, here's what you need to do. Do more right things, do less bad things. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us grew up in church thinking that's what the Christian life was about? Do more good things, do less bad things. That, that's not the good news. Actually, that good news sounds really not very good. But yet many of us grew up with that burden. And the result, is that, the result of that is we live our life kind of like discouraged. How many of us, don't raise your hands again, how many of us know what it's like to live as a Christian and feel totally discouraged that we stink at living as a Christian? I'm defeated. I'm discouraged because I'm not good at this. This, how I'm supposed to live, if it's just to focus on what we're supposed to do. Some, some of us are like, well, you know what? I failed and I failed, but this time I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm determined that this time I'll get it. And only to find ourselves once again falling short and feel like, what's wrong with me? I, I can't seem to get this. There are those who are disillusioned. It's like, I'm tired of trying to get this. I'm tired of failing. And people walk away from the faith. And we know people who have done that. And worst of all, amongst the discouraged and the disillusioned and, and the, the, the disappointed, there are those who think, well, you know what? I got this. And that's actually spiritual pride. And that's a whole other sermon. None of us got this. That's why we need Christ. Behavior modification is not Christianity. We weren't good at modifying our behavior. And so what happens if you, if, you, if you grow up thinking it's all about modifying our behavior to look a certain way, to be a certain ways, we have to hide who we really are. And you wonder why people think we're a bunch of phonies, because we're hiding. I'm sorry, that's another sermon altogether. Stay on track, Jerome. But verses 1 through 2 changes everything when you begin to read Romans 12 and, and on. Paul says that we are to be a living sacrifice. He takes this from, of course, the, the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament. We're, we're free of it now. He, he makes that clear in Romans. It's no longer about offering an animal. It's, it's offering your life. A living sacrifice is a totally new concept to these people who are used to a sacrifice being, I mean, it's alive when they, when they bring it. And then that was, like, that was a goat or something. I don't know. It's alive when they bring the sacrifice, but they offer it and it's it's. They offered that sacrifice dead. You know, it's, it's, it's dead as it's offered. And he's saying, no, 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 no. This is a living sacrifice. Contrast that with the dead thing. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I, I believe Paul kind of unpacks that for us six chapters earlier in Romans chapter six when he's going through this theology. You know what? 
Shocker for you guys who are used to like one main passage and Jerome's going to read it and then we're going to talk, we might reference others. We're going to read this one. Turn with me, seriously, turn with me. Romans chapter 6. We're actually going to read 11 verses here for those of you who didn't feel like two verses was enough. Uh, some of you. Anyway, Romans chapter 6. Now Paul has talked about, look at, look at the last verse of, of chapter 5. Now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ. He has made this beautiful case for our, our, our justification with Christ. And then he, he responds and starts chapter 6 with an argument that he expects others to think and perhaps have said to him, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined him in his death for we died, and we were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, so now we may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we've also been raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We no longer are slaves to sin, for we died with Christ, and we are set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death is no, long, no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now he lives. He lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. Drop the mic, the band's coming, we're going to worship. I mean, like, serious. That's your theological foundation for a living sacrifice. What's a living sacrifice? It's your everyday life of living life. Ooh. <laughs> I will. Uh, let me read Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2 again to you, but in a different translation. I'm going to use the message translation, Eugene Peterson actually wrote the message for his church just in little passages and publishers are like, break the whole thing, Eugene. So um, I don't, you don't normally hear me preaching out of this, but this is said in a very like everyday language way. I want you, I want you to hear this. Romans chapter 12, uh, one and two, the, the, the passage of scripture we started with. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants you to do, and quickly respond to it. Unless the culture around, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. See, a living sacrifice is about how we live in our everyday, ordinary life. Do we live as somebody who has been, as we saw in Romans chapter 6, given a new life in the everyday and the ordinary? That's the context for a reasonable act of worship. That's the context for my life being the, a life of worship. Not this place. Your everyday, ordinary life. 
See, God doesn't want you to just offer a sacrifice of worship. He wants your entire life to be a sacrifice of worship. God doesn't just want you to offer a sacrifice. I'm coming in here. I don't feel like it. I'm going to raise my hands and sing loud because that's a sacrifice to him. That's just a moment. That's just an event. He wants your everyday, ordinary life, coming and going, sleeping and waking, to be a life of worship. There's a difference between offering a sacrifice of worship. That's a moment of worship. That's an event of worship. There's a difference between that and being a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, living a life of worship. If we're not careful, we begin to relegate our worship to this place or to places similar to this or in the car with Caleb or whatever our, 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 our place of worship is. That we kind of separate our worship life and the rest of our life. It becomes about a moment and it becomes about an event. It becomes about the certain setting we begin then to live for those moments. My, my relationship is now tied to the way in which I meet God, and that's okay because we're all designed to worship. We all want to put ourselves in the place where worship happens, but we've limited to where the places where worship happens, haven't we? That's a good thing because, I mean, it's a good thing when we, when we desire to be in God's presence because there is a nearness to God. There is a sense of his love in those environments. You're like, okay, Jerome, but why is that a problem? Don't we want to put ourselves in that place? Yeah, unless it means all the other places we're at are not places and possibilities and opportunities for worship. The dark side, and I've already mentioned this, is that we become consumers of worship. But I think instead, God would have us rather be consumed in worship. See, there's a difference between being a worship consumer and one who is consumed in worship. Consumers ask questions like, what's in it for me? Oh, man, this feels good. I can't get enough of this. Consumers look at an experience and say, well, what, what is it that makes me happy? What, what am I, you know, I going to get out of it? What makes me happy? Consumers are concerned about what they get. Whereas those who are consumed in worship ask and, and different questions and say different things. Rather than what's in it for me, they say, I'm in it for you. Rather than it feels good, they say, oh man, this hurts so good. Rather than I can't get enough, it's like, I, God, I can't give enough. What would our worship be like if we just said, I can't give enough? I'd have to like kick the band off the stage so we can, you might not get out of your car worshiping because you can't give enough. Rather than saying what makes me happy, it's what makes him happy. Rather than being concerned about what they get, it's concerned what they give. There's a difference between being a consumer of worship and being consumed in worship. Don't get me wrong, events are good. Events are there to like supplement, to support a life of worship. But they're just events. If we live a life of worship and we go to an event of worship, guess what? The worship kind of just spills out of us. But if we're waiting for that event, for it to all of a sudden bubble out of nowhere, I mean, you want to worship. Live a life of worship. I already mentioned Amazon reviews and how consumers act. You know what consumers do when they don't like a product? They withhold. I don't like this particular worship product. I don't think I'm going to worship today. They're also the most prone to find themselves disappointed with the product or feeling let down with the product. Living a life of worship actually sets you up 
listen to this, living a life of worship actually sets you up for more of those moments of worship that are spread throughout your everyday ordinary life. Why is that? Because a life of worship doesn't require the circumstances to be just right, like a consumer would. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling today, if I'm going to offer God worship, if I'm going to praise him. It doesn't matter if, if it's my favorite song, if it's my preferred style, if the, the room is at the ideal temperature. I guarantee you standing in these lights is never the ideal temperature. It doesn't matter what my relationship was with other people in the room, although I think God believes it matters. But that's another sermon altogether. It doesn't matter what my life circumstances are. And let me just say, this is not a guilt trip. I'm not, I have a preferred style of music, and believe it or not, we don't sing it on Sunday morning. I'm living in the 90s when, in my car. It's shout to the Lord, and it's, I mean, listen, I'm telling you. I, we, don't, we do this worship not for me, because I'm the pastor. We do this worship because I want to make sure we leave sons and daughters in the faith. But that's another sermon altogether. All right. But listen, have a preference for music. It's right to have a preference. It's right to have the things that minister to you deeply. You should. You should have favorites. But don't let that dictate whether or not you worship. Because God hasn't changed. Not a guilt trip. Just a loving nudge to catch yourself in those moments where we slide into consumerism. And we all do. I do. When we become consumers of worship and we have all these different things that kind of dictate whether we engage in worship, like life circumstances being difficult, it's hard to walk in here sometimes when life is beating you up and be like, I don't feel like being here. I don't know if I want to worship today. Can I tell you what? That's probably the best time when you're desperate and it's difficult to offer a sacrifice of praise. Job had all these, you remember the story of Job in the New Old Testament? All these people kept coming to him saying, your kids are gone, your stuff is gone. And his wife looked at him and said, are you going to still like, honor God? You're still going to worship him? And his response wasn't like, yeah, you're right, life stinks. He fell on his face and worshiped in the midst of the worst, the most devastating news you could have. The apostles in the book of Acts, beaten up, thrown into prison, and they worshiped. Why? Because it wasn't their circumstances that were just right. It was those, they lived a life of worship. God doesn't just want you to offer a sacrifice of worship. He wants your entire life to be a sacrifice of worship. So what is it that we do? Let me give you some takeaways really quick. First of all, and this is going to seem super obvious to you, it's like a Sunday school answer, but it's the right answer. Treasure Jesus. The key to praising Christ is prizing Christ. We do praise what we prize, but our problem is we fail to prize Christ as we should in the midst of all of our life's cares and concerns. See, it's easy to grow complacent in our walk with God. It's easy to take our walk with God for granted. It's easy to lose the awe and wonder even when we're singing words like, I once was lost, but now I'm found. If we really stop and consider, I once was lost, and now I'm found, I don't know that we should be able to get through those words. Yeah. Prize Christ. The problem is we look to other things, other treasures, to bring satisfaction to our soul, whether that's success or approval or status, financial freedom, our next vacation. I'm guilty of that. 
But that's actually our default setting as humans. It's called idolatry. Here's something about idolatry. Whatever it is that you have to have, I have to have this. I have to have status. I have to have security. I have to have success. I have to have approval. Whatever you have to have actually has you. That's idolatry. And you live your life and you orient your life to get that thing. But it's controlling you. You realize that. So treasuring Jesus is living with an awareness and a reminder that Jesus is the only source for the deep down lasting satisfaction that your soul craves. One of my favorite quotes, you've heard me say this before if I've been your pastor very long. It's from a pastor named John Piper who says this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we are most satisfied in him when we treasure him. You want to bring glory to God? You want to bring worship to him? Find your satisfaction in him. Second thing is this, check your thinking. When you walk into an event, are you walking in as a consumer or are you sliding into that mentality or are you looking to be consumed in worship? What are you measuring in those, in those environments? Is it the worth of the band? Like, this band, oops, they missed a beat. Not worthy of my worship. Is this preacher? I'm just careful, careful. <laughs> is this preacher... Am I going to worship with this guy up here wearing jeans? I don't really mean that to be a new thing. I just happen to be wearing jeans. Um, this guy doesn't communicate the way I like him. I'm guilty of that. Almost every church I go into and listen to another pastor, not because I'm the best, but just because I'm brutally brutal. And I'm like, eh. I'm just glad I don't sit here in my own sermons, huh? I, I, I do it. I'm not saying this because I've like, I'm the expert. I'm not saying this because I'm not selfish and I'm not, I'm just saying it because I believe that's the truth. Third thing is this, cultivate or at least learn to cultivate ordinary moments of worship. This is about weaving worship into your everyday ordinary life, taking it out of the worship event. I mean, if you're only worshiping Jesus in this building, we've got a problem. Take it out of here so that you could answer the question. You could say the word yes when you ask yourself the question, is my worship of Christ still present when the music is turned off? What does it mean to cultivate ordinary moments of worship? It means creating the habit of, of pausing in ordinary moments to worship. The good news is it's actually doing something we already do. We already kind of stand in awe and wonder of a sunset, Right? Let that trigger a moment of worship of the one who created the sunset. We already spend half of our day daydreaming, thinking about the past, thinking about today, thinking about tomorrow. Man, those are, that, those are opportunities to trigger worship. I'm thinking about my life. If I'm daydreaming, driving in my car, I know everything's driving in my car. I should have bought a house further away. Um, I'd spend more time with Jesus. Uh, but... How much, how much time do we spend in our life talking to ourselves? We just don't move our lips because people we're, think we're crazy. Um, when I, if I consider the journey that God has brought me on, there's a moment of worship. I'm not saying make a show of worship. I'm not saying, you know, stop your car in the middle of the road. I'm just saying for half a second, close your eyes and sigh. And God receives that as worship. Like, oh, God, you've been good. If you're thinking about 
the obstacles of tomorrow. And there's fear and there's doubt and there's uncertainty. Let that be a trigger of worship. God, I'm so glad that you are indeed all full and in control and you know me and you have good plans for me. That's a moment of worship. Let it trigger. See, we already do these things. Just adding a trigger to it. When we live a life of worship instead of living for moments of worship, you know what actually happens? <laughs> we actually have more moments of worship because it just spills out. We will worship when the times are good. We'll worship when times are bad. We will worship when the music is good. We'll worship when the music is bad. We'll worship when there's no music. Because our worship is no longer tied to our circumstances. No longer tied to how life is going or how we're feeling right now. Because all that stuff changes, but God doesn't change. See, our worship ought to be tied, and it is, when you live a life of worship, to the one who is unchanging, who is eternal, who is the redeemer, the creator, who is loving and faithful. Those things don't change, and he's worthy of our worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to look to your word. We see here that you've called us to live a life of worship, a life in everyday, ordinary moments where we live out the new life you've given us, that we, are, we have died to our old self. We are alive in Christ. May we indeed live that life of worship. Those ordinary moments, those moments when we stand there in front of difficult people or circumstances and the world doesn't know it and they can't see it but there's worship flowing from our heart because of who you are and what you've done and the hope that we have in Jesus name Amen